the ultimate reward that you and I can receive is simply to be with Jesus forever. And our Lord here says that's exactly what you get. You get the bright morning star. Oh, and by the way, that's me. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part eight of his current series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. Last time we arrived at the letter to the church at Thyatira. And here's the question, what was the congregation's real sin? What should you be on the lookout for in your church, in your life, and in the churches around you? As a preview of what you're about to hear, the church's real sin was tolerating extra-biblical authority and revelation as taught by a self-proclaimed prophetess, Jezebel, within the church itself. It happened then, but can it happen in today's world? Is there a remarkable resemblance to the modern charismatic prosperity gospel movement? And what happened in the church in Thyatira? If so, how? What is the ultimate goal of all false teaching, both historically and today? What should you, in your own congregation, be on the lookout for? Well, let's join our teacher to find out more here on The Word Unleashed. She may have argued, like the Corinthians did, that sexual decisions were a manner of Christian liberty, 1 Corinthians 6.12. You remember they had a slogan in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me. They tried to rationalize their sexual sin as if it were an issue of Christian liberty. They tried to say, look, listen, it's not that important. I love Christ. I'm still a committed Christian. She may have also argued, as those in Corinth had, that the body and its deeds didn't ultimately matter. 1 Corinthians 6.13, again, this was one of the slogans in Corinth, Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. This was likely a slogan of the libertines in Corinth to excuse their sin. They argued that just as God made, the, made food and the stomach for each other, God made the body for sexual intimacy. So indulging the body's sexual desires in whatever way we choose, it's as natural as eating. Besides, the body was for this life only. It it was a kind of platonic dualism that said, what I do with my body doesn't matter. It's my soul that matters. It's possible. Those are the arguments she used. But don't miss this. Her trump card, her ultimate argument that this was okay was the authority of God himself because she said she was speaking revelation from God as a prophetess. Now, that brings us to her recalcitrance, her her stubbornness, her defiance. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, Christ says. Isn't that just like our Lord? I mean, I read about this woman, and if I'm Christ, zap, she's gone. Right? I mean, but not our Lord. He says, I gave her time to repent. Despite the horrific nature of this woman's sins, Christ was incredibly patient with her, just like the Amorites, you remember? God left his people in Israel, his people Israel in Egypt for 400 years because remember what he said in Genesis 15? The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. 400 years. Now, 
What he says here when he says, I gave her time to repent, that implies that she had received a warning, possibly from the Apostle John himself before he was exiled on Patmos. Remember, he served in all these churches. Whatever, however that warning came, sadly, she ignored it, and she ignored the Lord's gracious invitation, and she continued to pursue her sin. Verse 21, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. So now, Christ's patience is done. God is incredibly patient. But there is a line in the mind of God. Cross that line, and you're done. And that was true with this woman. He pronounces, because of that, her condemnation. Verses 22 and 23, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. Now, so we start with the woman herself, with Jezebel, the, the prophetess. I will throw her on a bed of sickness. The word of sickness, you'll notice, are in italics, been added by the translators. That's their interpretation. Literally, I will throw her on a bed. Now, there have been a lot of interpretations of what this bed could be. Some have said it's the couch on which she reclined to eat at the, the idol feasts. In other words, Christ is saying, I'm going to judge you as you engage in idol worship. Others say, no, this is her, her funeral bed. He's going to kill her. A, a third interpretation is this is her bed in hell because she was unwilling to repent. The fourth and most common interpretation, and the one that I, I believe is true, and I go along with the uh, translators here in the NIS, is a sickbed or a bed of suffering that ends in death. She's going to be punished. Think about this. She's going to be punished in the same place she regularly sinned against the Lord she claimed. In the case of believers, this happens, 1 Corinthians 11.30 Speaking of those believers in Corinth who had sinned at the Lord's table, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That is, the Lord has disciplined them in death. But what about this woman? One author, Wall, puts it this way. Listen to this. This is very interesting. That she is to be thrown upon a bed of suffering may indicate that she championed the opposite that is an escape from suffering. He goes on to say, her heresy may very well be the ancient equivalent of the current gospel of prosperity. So Christ says, I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness that's going to end in her death. I'm done. Verse 22, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation... Those who commit adultery with her refers to those of Christ's slaves, remember we just saw that, true believers who were swept along with her teaching and who followed her horrific example. Christ says, I'm going to cast those slaves of mine who have followed her teaching and leading into great tribulation. Some see this as referring to the, the seven-year tribulation period. It's more likely a reference to Christ's severe chastening in this life. Great tribulation, chastening. But again, notice Christ is going to restrain the discipline if there's repentance, unless they, my, my, my slaves who've been sinning against me, repent of her deeds. That is the deeds they learned from her. Verse 23, and I will kill her children. Here's another group. So far we've dealt with the woman. We've dealt with true believers, Christ's slaves, who were carried along in this. Now, here's a third group. I will kill her children with pestilence. It's not likely these are her actual children born out of perhaps her immoralities. 
We can't be certain who these people are, but it seems to me this is a different group from those in verse 22. Those were believers who followed her teaching. Here are those who are called her children. They are her offspring. What's the point? They share her nature. In other words, these are people not just carried along by her sin, but people who have completely bought into her teaching and are freely like her teaching others to do the same. Christ says he's going to kill them with pestilence, with disease. As a result of the judgment that Christ said he would bring on this woman, on those sinning believers who followed her example, and on her devoted disciples, notice verse 23, as a result of that, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. The Greek word translated minds is actually kidneys. In the Greek way of thinking in the ancient world, the kidneys were seen as the seat of the will and the affections. The heart was the seat of the thoughts. Christ said that when he judged this woman and those who were following her, all of the churches would know that he searches the emotions, the wills, the thoughts of all those connected to his church. Verse 23, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Each one makes this very personal. He responds to each person based on what he finds. But this was really Christ's assurance, I think, that the innocent ones in the church in Thyatira would not be punished along with the guilty. He would instead search the hearts, find out who was guilty, and deal with them. Now that brings us to the church's crime. As we continue to look at the correction of the sin, it brings us to the church's crime. What exactly was this church's crime? We've seen the woman, but what was the church's crime? Well, it was threefold. First of all, it was allowing a woman to exercise a teaching role with the whole church. 1 Timothy 2.12 forbids a woman to, to teach or exercise authority over men in the context of the, the gathering of the church. They were violating this, obviously, in allowing this woman this role. Secondly, they were compromising the truth for personal prosperity. I'm going to come back to that, so I'll just mention it. And then thirdly, they were replacing the authority of Scripture with extra-biblical revelation. So when you look at those three, here's the question. What was the real sin in the church in Thyatira? What should we be on the lookout for in our church, in our lives, in the churches around us? It's very interesting. Think about this for a moment. The result of this woman's teaching is the same result as the teaching in Pergamum that we saw last time, and that is attending the pagan temple feast, participating in the sexual sin that went with it, same results. But it's crucial to note that the authority of the false teachers in these churches is entirely different. In Pergamum, the source of their teaching appears to have been a combination of a misuse of the Scripture and pragmatism. In Thyatira, the source of authority was extra-biblical revelation. This woman claimed to be receiving revelation directly from God, and the church was tolerating it and accepting it. So the church's real sin, don't miss this, was tolerating extra-biblical authority and revelation. Now, I hope you can see, as I do, remarkably, this teaching bears huge resemblance to the modern charismatic prosperity gospel movement. Because what you had here was a false claim of extra-biblical revelation, and what was the goal, ultimately? It was financial. 
it was the prosperity that came with belonging to the guilds in that city, practicing your, your trade in a city that was exploding financially. That brings us back to our text. As we continue to look at the body of the letter, we've seen a commendation of the good in verse 19, a correction of the sin in verses 20 to 23. In verses 24 and 25, we see a call for perseverance. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, the rest, by the way, does not mean that most of the church had followed Jezebel. The same expression is used in other places in the New Testament, speaking of majority. So we don't know how many followed her or how many did not. Christ is simply speaking to the rest of the church, and he identifies them, notice in verse 24, in two ways. Those who do not hold this teaching and who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. That's the teaching the deep things of Satan, as they call them. Probably Jezebel and her followers were making this claim that they knew the deep things of Satan. What in the world is going on here? They claimed that they knew experientially about the depths of Satan's kingdom, but had experienced it and suffered no spiritual harm. This group was probably an early form of Gnosticism. If so, it went like this. Before you could have victory over Satan, you first had to know and experience his works, the deep things of Satan. Bill Mounts in his commentary describes it this way, to fully appreciate the grace of God, one must first plumb the depths of evil. Later Gnosticism boasted that it was precisely by entering into the stronghold of Satan that believers could learn the limits of his power and emerge victorious. It's convenient. Along with this, they also held that as long as you kept your soul pure, listen to this, it didn't matter what your body did. Your spirit belongs to God. So it doesn't really matter if your body attends an idolatrous feast and if your body engages in sexual sin. That's what this woman and her followers believed. And it's what the rest of the church that Christ is addressing now rejected. Verse 24, you haven't believed that. And if you're in that group, I place no other burden on you. No other burden other than what? Verse 25, here's the burden. Nevertheless, or it could be read, this is what I mean, what you have, hold fast until I come. Here's the burden I place on you. Hold fast what you have until I come. What you have refers to the sum total of Christian doctrine, the entire body of doctrine that makes up the Christian faith. That's what you have. And he says, hold fast, maintain your grip, hold on to what you have believed until I come. All Christ wanted the true believers in Thyatira to do was to hold fast to the truth they had believed until he returned. Brothers and sisters, that's what he wants from you. Hold fast. Hold fast what you have persevere. That brings us to the conclusion of the letter, verses 26 to 29. Here's an exhortation to each believer. In the case of the previous three letters we've studied, there was a call to listen, and then there was a call to overcome. With this letter and the remaining letters, that order's reversed. So first, Christ extends here a call to overcome in verses 26 to 28. Verse 26, he who overcomes... Now remember, if you're a true believer and you just keep on believing, you're an overcomer. 
This isn't a special class of Christians. This is every Christian who just keeps on believing, keeps on believing. But here, Christ adds a second description of the overcomer. Notice what he says. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. There's an intentional contrast here between her works in verse 22, Jezebel's works, and my works, Christ's works in verse 25. The true believer in this church was not going to follow the works of Jezebel, but Christ. And the true believer will continue to follow the works of Christ, notice, until the end. That's the perseverance of the believer. Just, just keep on believing. That's all Christ demands of us. Just hold fast until he comes. Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not a battle. It's a campaign. And this marathon, this campaign that is the Christian life requires endurance and perseverance. Every believer will endure and therefore will inherit the promises made to the overcomers in these seven letters. These promises are for you. Here in Thyatira, Christ makes two promises to true believers, to those who overcome. These promises are for you, Christian. First of all, Christ will give every believer authority to rule with him. Christ quotes, beginning in the middle of verse 26 and verse 27, from promises that the Father made to him in Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9. And Christ here promises that every true believer will enjoy the fruit of those promises. So Christ says, listen, those promises weren't just made to me. If you're my follower, they were made to you as well. These verses constitute the first promise in the book of Revelation that believers will participate in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. With Christ, we will all, believers, exercise, notice first of all, universal authority. Verse 26, to him I will give authority over the nations. We will exercise absolute authority. Verse 27, he will rule them with a rod of iron. We will exercise unchallenged authority as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. In other words, our, the authority that we rule along with Christ will be such that if anyone dares to rebel, if they dare to reject that authority, they'll be crushed in a thousand pieces like a, a pot hit with an iron bar. Our authority will be a delegated authority. Notice how verse 27 ends, as I also have received authority from my Father. When did he receive that authority? Well, it was promised him in Psalm 2. It was given to him as a result of the resurrection. You remember uh, Philippians 2 says, because he humbled himself, God has given him the name above every name, the name Lord, so that in his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Think about that, believer. You're going to reign with Jesus Christ. You're going to share his throne. There's another promise to the overcomer here, and that is that Christ will give every believer the morning star, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. What is that? Well, the morning star is defined here in the book of Revelation. Turn over to chapter 22. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. This is Jesus talking now. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. So the promise to the church in Thyatira, the promise to all true believers who just hang on, who hold fast, who just keep believing, 
The promise to you is the presence of your Lord forever. The ultimate reward that you and I can receive is simply to be with Jesus forever. And our Lord here says that's exactly what you get. You get the bright morning star. Oh, and by the way, that's me. It's like John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that I, they may see my glory which you've given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Father, let them be with me where I am. To the true believer who just keeps on believing in Jesus, Jesus promises that he will give the true believer himself. This letter ends with a call to listen. Verse 29, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the ancient equivalent of listen up, believer. Pay attention to what Christ says in this letter. So how can we pay attention? Well, let me bring out briefly the enduring lessons from this letter to the church in Thyatira. There are just a handful of them. Number one, this letter reminds us that Christians in every generation must guard the temptation to accept and adopt their culture's value standards and practices. Like the prophetess and her followers, it's easy to exalt expediency over principle. It's easy, folks, to justify conformity to your culture even when it's sinful. Be aware. Be on guard. It wasn't just the first century where people heard a good excuse for fitting in and took it. It happens in every generation. It's happening with you. It happens with me. Secondly, claims of new revelation will always displace the value and priority of Scripture. Can I just tell you that the moment you say, okay, if you could choose between a book that was written between 2,000 and 3,500 years ago, and it was written to all of God's people, if, if that's on one side, and on the other side is God talking personally to you today, which are you going to choose? Well, you know what you're going to choose if that's a real choice. So the moment that choice is offered, guess what happens? The importance and priority of the Scripture immediately diminishes significantly, and it never comes back. Look at the churches where that happens, and I can promise you claims of new revelation always displace the Scripture. Thirdly, Extra-biblical revelation will always lead to error in doctrine and failure in practice. The church in Thyatira is a perfect example. You know what's interesting? Eventually, this church, Thyatira, embraced the Montanist heresy, a movement led by a false prophet who claimed continuing revelation from God outside the Scripture. History tells us this church disappeared by the end of the second century, following the same course they were already on. Number four. We must reject every kind of supposed revelation outside of Scripture. Every kind. Folks, that's modern apostles. That's prophecies, whether it's at the biblical level or whether it's that second-tier level that's taught in a lot of charismatic circles. It means we must reject words from the Lord. We must reject people who write saying they're writing under some quasi-inspiration like Jesus calling. We must reject the sort of pedestrian every day version of this in Christian churches. The Lord told me to, you fill in the blank. Unless it's in the Bible, the Lord didn't tell you. Don't say that. We must reject every kind of supposed revelation outside of Scripture. And number five, 
we must hold fast to the truth that the scripture is sufficient. Listen, you don't need anything else. We have here everything we need for godliness. Don't be looking somewhere else. Don't be following the latest Jezebel. Instead, follow our Lord and His revealed Word. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of The Seven Churches of Revelation. Join us next time for part nine. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.